Welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Mark Garrett-Hayes. Last week in episode 26, we talked about five things that you can do to boost your training business. Any thoughts on that since we spent time together last week? Yeah? Well, I have. Even, even in designing the episode, a couple of things popped into my mind and I thought, I'm giving you advice. Am I taking my own advice? So even that episode last week has begun to really shift my thinking about the kinds of things that I can be doing and should be doing to boost my training business, not just for Q2 this year in 2019, but also into the rest of this year and next year. And one of the ideas we talked about last week together was the concept of building, in other words, creating your own training material, your own courses online and selling them. And any creation of the mind, my mind, your mind, anyone else's mind, we refer to as intellectual property. In other words, stuff that you create in your mind before you do something with it and create that as a course or handouts or a logo, etc. The danger is that once you create something and you transform that from a, an intangible idea into something tangible or something which can be disseminated, could be handouts or slides or a course on teachable, udemy.com. Once those things are publicly accessible, they're kind of outside of your control. Does that concern you? Well, well yes, it should, because these are your intangible assets. They're yours, and you're entitled to legal protection and the benefit of any income as a result of selling them. So the question today is, how do you legally protect your training content? This is episode 27 of the podcast. Let's get down to training business. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, I'm Mark. Welcome to today's episode. You're listening to the podcast for training business owners to help you to learn more, to earn more, and to grow your training business. Each week on a Thursday, we either have a topic like today or I have a guest on the show. Would you like to influence the topics we have on the show? I hope so. Please be my guest. You can reach me by email on markghayes.com at gmail.com and I do respond in person. In my early days, I thought nothing of taking an image from Google Images or some other source and putting this into my own website or training material. Now, I don't do that anymore. I can't do that. And you don't want that done to you either. My mother, who is a retired trainer, told me a story where a number of years ago she had created content for a local business employability program and innocently and helpfully had passed this to another training individual, a training professional, and then, much to her disappointment, came across that same content word for word, photocopied and rebranded and passed off as that other person's content. Now, you can imagine the hours of work and creativity and originality and, of course, a huge disappointment at seeing this material going round without any buy your leave or recognition of her ownership of that. Nowadays, the, the DMC, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, is designed to protect people from having the material plagiarized. It's un a United States copyright law from 1998, which is used to 
criminalized the illegal dissemination of training material, intellectual property. Now, we'll not address that topic today. That's uh, quite a meaty or substantial topic, but that will be the subject of a future episode. So think of today's episode as an introduction in 35 minutes or so to the concept of intellectual property and why it should concern you as a training business owner, particularly if you have created slides or training handouts or content which you're selling online or distributing via other people in your training sessions, because it's your material and you want to protect it. Is it worth the effort? How do you do it? What does it cost? These are the topics we'll look at in the next 35 minutes or so. And to do this, I've invited Kristen Grant of Grant Attorneys at Law in New York. That's Kristen Grant of Grant Attorneys at Law in New York on the program to look at these subjects with you. She is an expert in IP law, specifically the US, and she is going to talk to us about some really helpful tips that you can use to protect your training material. Kristen, thanks for coming on the show and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mark. So you're a managing attorney with Grant Attorneys at Law, PLLC, in New York City. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's correct. And to give some background, you've an MBA from Wales in the UK, which isn't too far from me. And you've also a JD at or from New York Law School. Yep, that's right. And your business is effectively representing individuals and business owners or businesses as entities in the sphere of intellectual property law. So let's talk, first of all, about your background. What um, what brought you to study law? And then we'll talk about um, the kinds of things that a training business owner should care about when it comes to intellectual property. And we'll define intellectual property. And then I'm going to bring us on to the kinds of tips that you as an, an IP or intellectual property expert can give us today, particularly in the context of helping training business owners to protect their intellectual property. How does that sound? That sounds perfect. Okay, so let's start with you. Um, your So your background is obviously law. Um, tell us about what took you to the point where you realized you wanted to specialize in intellectual property law. Sure. So I actually went to college in uh, D.C. in the U.S., District of Columbia, and I studied chemistry pre-med. So after college, I was not really sure that I wanted to continue down the path of going to medical school. Um, so someone suggested to me patent law, which in the U.S. you're required to have a hard science or engineering um, bachelor's or higher in order to qualify for the patent bar examination. So someone suggested to me that I look into that um, as IP might be a good field for me to get into. So I did some research and decided, well, that actually might be a great option because um, it still allows me to use my degree. Um, it allows me to work with creatives as well as scientists. Um, and why not? <laughs> so yeah, so I gave, that's how I kind of got into uh, the field of intellectual property. So when I did decide to go to law school, I knew from the outset that I wanted to um, focus my educational background on learning as much 
about intellectual property law as possible. Okay, so you've also got an MBA from Wales in the UK. I have an MBA as well. What did you derive in terms of benefit from an MBA? What has that done for your perhaps uh, understanding of, of, of business structure and the, the kind of link between law and business? Yeah, sure. It did a lot. Um, for me, just having a science background, initially, I didn't really have a background in business before doing my MBA. So I thought it was very helpful, especially now that I own my own firm, um, to just have an idea of, you know, business, you know, so finances, marketing and, and other aspects of business. I thought it was very important to have that as a business owner myself. Why, why do you think intellectual property is so topical um, given what's going on in the recording industry or in fact the internet per se? Why do, why do you think intellectual property is so important an area for someone to focus on in any area of uh, business? Yeah, sure. So every business has intellectual property. A lot of people don't even realize it. Um, but intellectual property can actually increase the value of your company. It's an intangible asset and it does have value. Um, protecting it can reduce um, your vulnerability from claims from third parties. Um, it's very important to make sure that, you know, you're using your own content and not using other people's content without permission. Um, so intellectual property is, is it's important not only to protect it, but to make sure that you're conscious of where you're getting content from um, and you're just keeping track of everything to make sure that you're having a, as low a risk as possible. Why don't we define what intellectual property actually is? Uh, my understanding, you can correct me here, is that it's anything which is the product of human um, creativity. It could be music, it could be a trademark, a service mark, a logo of some kind. It could be a play, it could be a song. Uh, but in the context of what we're talking about today, it could be something like someone's ideas for, um, let's say, I don't know, a training module or some kind of video or something which uh, pertains to the the thing that makes a training company different from another training business. Um, and I think that's important to do because we need to understand what are the things that we can actually protect and what are the things we can't protect if we define intellectual property. Yeah, sure. So you're absolutely correct. Intellectual property is an intangible asset that results from mental creativity. creativity. So for example, literary works, artistic works, or branding, as well as products. So um, from the perspective of a training business, anything um, like written content, video content, um, imagery could be protectable and should be protected. Right. So how would, how would a training business owner go about doing that thinking, you know, okay, what are the things I need to, to look at here? What are the things I own? Um, is it stuff I've created? Is it stuff, uh, that, uh, someone working for me has done? Is there a difference in protecting those? Um, are there areas where I'm, you know, probably exposed and areas where I perhaps have less concern? Is, is it easy or difficult to kind of put a, a basic uh, idea in someone's mind if they're a training business owner to help them to understand the kinds of things they should uh, try and protect? Sure. Yeah. I, I think it's easy. I think any written content that you created yourself is likely protectable. I mean, everything is not protectable, but obviously that's why you consult an attorney. But any written content, um, if your employees have created content, interestingly enough, it really depends um, on 
if it's within their role to do so. But my suggestion for that situation would be to make sure that any agreement that you have with them requires that they assign the content to the company so that there are no issues of ownership down the line. Um, if you have independent contractors working for you rather than employees, the same thing goes. Make sure you have a written agreement which assigns the content to the company because otherwise the independent contractor will likely own the content, which means if you if you end up using it, there could be a potential issue down the line. Um, so just thinking along the lines of things that, that, that a company should think of protecting are branding, so logos, slogans, the company name, any written material, so training um, course, course material, if you're doing um, video content, might be worthwhile protecting that as well. Okay, so let's uh, let's imagine a scenario where, as a training business owner, I'm thinking now of, of something I came across last year where I definitely found someone else's video content being used by another company, and I the first thing I did was I actually uh, contacted the person, a videographer, as it happened, um, in San Diego, and told him. And he then took steps to um, address that. I don't know what those steps were. So what would someone do if they come across their content in the hands of another training provider or, shall we say, being used by another entity when they are crystal clear it was something that they came up with? What would they do um, as a first step or first couple of steps? Sure. My first suggestion might be obvious, but it would be to contact an attorney just to make sure that you do have an intellectual property claim in the content, even though you created it. Everything is not necessarily protectable. Um, second step might be to send a cease and desist letter, which is a letter which states, you know, I have intellectual property ownership in the content that you're using and I'm demanding that you remove it within a certain number of days. These letters can range anywhere from a friendlier tone to overly aggressive tone, depending on the situation. Um, but as I said, it's always best to consult an attorney just to get a, you know, an, a guidance on your specific issue. So no disrespect to you, but but could that actually be costly? Um, is there a point at which a training business owner might say, you know what, it's not worth it um, because, you know, I can't really, I can't even begin to, uh, I can't afford the process perhaps of, of instigating some kind of legal action. Is there a point at which it doesn't really become worth it? Or would you think that um, it sets a, a, an, an unfortunate precedent by letting people away with using your content? Yeah, so so it depends on what the content is. If it's a trademark, you 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 are under an obligation in the U.S. to enforce. Oh, really? Otherwise, if you let yeah, if you if you let others use your trademark, it becomes essentially just generic and it, it loses its strength. Um, copyright is not the same. So if you don't enforce, you don't enforce. Um, in my mind, it, it's worthwhile to enforce if you can't afford an attorney. I think even just reaching out and um, asserting your rights could be helpful. Some people might just have used the content without knowing and be willing to, you know, comply, whereas some might push back. But at least you get some some people to to stop by reaching out on your own. 
Um, but I wouldn't say just sit and do nothing. I would say it's important to enforce your rights. Right. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up actually is is to do with or has to do with personal experience. My mother um, used to be a trainer uh, until she retired a, a, a number of years ago. But I recall quite distinctly her. It was actually dismay and and yeah, real annoyance when she came across a company she had delivered uh, food and hygiene training to, and they were blatantly using her material. They'd photocopied it, and it had become part of the internal training material without any uh, form of courtesy request or buy your leave. They just did it without assuming. What, what is the cost to an organization if, let's say, they inadvertently... Um, let's say I have a training business, which I do, and I inadvertently use someone else's intellectual property. And I receive some kind of communication along the lines of a cease and desist, or in the case of online content, a takedown order. What what should I do if the shoe's on the other foot? If I, you know, hands up, didn't realize where the content had come from, it could be an individual working for me simply scooped it up from the net, or plagiarized it and and now it's part of my training material what should i do if i receive some kind of correspondence requesting that i cease and desist or take that material down sure if if the company accusing you of possible infringement seems to have a legitimate claim i would comply because compliance would subject you to the lowest amount of of damages how how substantial would those damages be Kristen? so they could be pretty low if in some instances, if it's a copyright issue, they could be anywhere from fifteen hundred to five thousand. If it's just they reach out and they are re- they they're just demanding payment. Um, if it turns into a lawsuit, some companies decide just to sue rather than to send a cease and desist letter. Damages can range from the profits that you have made as a business owner to what's called statutory damages, which are damages which are the amount is within the discretion of the judge. Wow. Um, so it, it really could add up statutory damages if the company who sent you the cease and desist letter, if they were prudent and they registered their intellectual property, they can get up to $150,000 per infringement. Right. So what does that mean per infringement? Is, is that per instance or just for each uh, uh, time that happens? Are you talking about, say, let's just say there are 50 copies of it going around. Uh, does that literally mean 50 times that uh, Damage? No, luckily not. <laughs> okay. So, so, so it's going to be per work. Okay. So, so, so based on the content. So, if you use two images, two different images, or for example. Okay, and I'm also thinking about um, imagery because it's so so easy, isn't it, to uh, go to images in Google and just take a picture and just stick that into your training material, and no one will know, and all of a sudden you receive. Um, a takedown notice um, from a particular uh, provider of stock photos whose name I will not mention because they're big. Um, And I know this has happened to someone where they put this into training handouts and somehow that material uh, came to the attention of someone who said, hang on a sec, this looks very like imagery from a particular large company. And uh, that uh, unfortunate training provider received uh, a legal uh, correspondence from the representative in the UK. Um, So we're really looking at um, 
a, a kind of a, a dimension where you're unlikely to get away with uh, intellectual property violation. Is, is that fair to say? Or is there a possibility that people could just, you know, think it doesn't really matter, it's just a picture or it's just a logo? How, how prudent and vigilant should a training business owner be when it comes to, you know, combing through uh, her or his training material just to make sure that its, its provenance is actually from that company and not from someone else's company or source? I think they should be very prudent. Currently, I'm working on a number of lawsuits with that very same issue. Okay. Um, <laughs> there are companies who enforce aggressively um, for the use of their images. So I would definitely recommend if you don't want to pay for images, um, stock photos from one of the companies that you can use one of the, the websites which offer free stock photography. They don't have as good images as the companies that are paid. They don't have as broad a selection, but you know that when you use the images that you're not going to be um, facing a lawsuit. So, so what you're saying effectively is don't take that chance. Uh, ensure that anything that goes into your content, whether it's training material or videos or blog posts, in no way um, infringes upon someone else's intellectual property. That's exactly what I'm advising, yeah. Okay. Um, and the reason that you and I uh, talked initially is because I'm going through the process right now of registering a trademark. I won't say what that is for obvious reasons, um, but um, you're helping me with that. What, what kind of an investment ballpark for people listening is involved in establishing a trademark or registering a registered name? Uh, and for the purposes of the answer, we're talking about the, the United States. Okay, sure. So you'd probably end up spending anywhere between $1,000 to $1,500 uh, to register a trademark if the application goes through with no issues um, in the U.S., and that's for one application. It sounds like a lot, perhaps, but, you know, if you look at it from the other angle, the issues that you can face on the op uh, on the other side, you're going to end up spending a lot more than that if you didn't register in the first place. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons I've asked that question is because um, one of the uh, podcasts... I listen to is from someone called Nathan Chan, an Australian who has a very well-known website called founder, F-O-U-N-D-R.com. And he has on a previous episode of his podcast uh, told the story of how within a short time of after launching his business, he was um, contacted by the attorney of a company asserting their intellectual property rights. And all of a sudden he realized all the time and investment in building up the brand at the initial stage was wasted. And he had to sort of take a step backwards and consider whether it was actually worth proceeding because he had just linked so much content to, to this particular name, which he could no longer use. What is it? What would it cost to defend... Um, and is it actually worth it if, if let's just say I, I have a trademark and I decide to register that for uh, a business? Um, it, it obviously takes time. Um, at what point would a company, a training business say, you know what, it's, let's just go ahead and see what happens. And if it, if it goes south or goes wrong, it goes wrong. Um, at what point does the investment become too much in establishing a trademark or multiple variations 
of a trademark? Um, I would say it depends on how much value you place on that mark. So, for example, if you have a trademark and you use an attorney to file it and the attorney tells you it's not a good trademark, but you still want to proceed with it, mm-hmm. there are going to be some challenges and you'll end up spending a lot more than the, the, the amount that I quoted just now. Um, so I guess it's really going to depend on, you know, how important is it to you to get this mark? And, you know, do you really want to push so hard that you go through the whole process up to appeals just to get one trademark? Or is it more worthwhile to just change the name, which is a lot less expensive? And is there a particular amount of time that someone needs to to wait for that process to to go its course? Yeah. You mean in terms of how long it takes uh, to know yeah. what's Sure. So once you file an application, the examiner usually reviews the application within three months from filing. So at that stage, you have a pretty good idea of if it's going to if it's approved or not. That doesn't mean that you absolutely have the trademark because there's a publication period after that, which allows third parties in the public who have who might have um, other rights and similar similar names may oppose of your application. Um, but if nobody opposes within those 30 days, then you're granted um, trademark rights in the U.S. So what happens if they do oppose? And on what kinds of grounds would it be legitimate to oppose a trademark application from someone like me, for example? Yeah, sure. So the grounds could be that they think that your your trademark is too similar to theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that they think that your mark can't shouldn't be a trademark. Maybe they think it's descriptive. It could be... Um, Can I interrupt you there? What does descriptive mean, uh, just for listeners, so they're clear? Sure. Descriptive is, it's describing, the mark is describing the goods and services offered. So I'll give you an example. Okay. If I wanted to call my mark, my company clothing, and I'm selling dresses, I mean, that's going to be pretty difficult to register as a trademark, just because... um, the name describes the goods. Right. Okay. So it's almost, um, it, it's too, it's too, how do I say this? It's too, um, it's too all encompassing. The word is almost describes the nature of the goods. So that could not by its very description, uh, be exclusive. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, let's move on to what I would like to focus on, uh, for this part of, of the interview, which is, your top five expert tips to help training business owners listening to this to protect their IP or intellectual property. Sure. So let's start with your first tip. What would you say that would be? So my first tip would be keep organized records of all content created. So you want to know who created the content, so which employee, um, the date they created it, uh, and or the date they edited it as well as the date that it's po- first posted and where where it was posted. So whether it was YouTube, whether it was on your website, you want to keep a record of all of these things. Okay. So that's the first thing, is, is to keep a record who created the content, uh, when they created that content, and, and where it has first appeared. Right. Okay. And uh, what about uh, your next tip then? Sure. Ensure that all employees and independent contractors assign the rights to all the content that they create to the business so that they can't come later and say that they own it and you can't use it. Yeah, I like that. 
Okay. So you're effectively saying um, if anyone, whether they're an employee or a contractor, does work on your behalf and in the execution of that work, they produce content, ensure that there's an agreement or something put in place which ascribes ownership of that content to you and to your business. That's right. Yep. Um, as an aside, is there anything that a training business owner could not legitimately do in that context and say, you know, this is something that someone did for me. I was paying them. They were on the, uh, the clock at that time, so to speak. Um, is there anything that a, a training business owner could not legitimately lay claim over? Yeah. And if you guys have agreed to transfer the ownership to the business, then I, I can't think of anything right now that would be an issue. Okay. All right. Uh, so what about your next tip, tip three? Sure. Uh, my next tip is if it can be protected, protect it. Don't rely on what's called common law protection, which are limited rights that exist without any formal registration. Um, it's important to formally protect your content if it's protectable. So don't just um, hope for the best. Uh, don't rely upon uh someone's uh good behavior or or observance of the law if you if you want to establish protection over something take steps to do it and don't just uh let it slip you by is, is that a fair summary or have i skipped over something <laughs> no that's that's accurate okay that's right <laughs> so in, in the case of what i'm doing right now your strong advice to me has been to not just assume that um because i can't find any instance of this particular combination of words nonetheless i should take steps to actually um with intention protect that particular domain name or that particular business name or or service mark exactly what happens kristen if let's say i'm in the us or i'm in the uk and i want to register a trademark outside of the jurisdictions which i've spoken of so let's say for example um i'm in um let me say, yeah, let's say the US, and I'm thinking of a trademark which I would like to have both in the US and in the EU. What is the approach in that instance to protect my intellectual property globally? Yeah, sure. So, so you have some options. You can either register independently in each territory, or if both territories that you want to register in, which in this case they are um, the EU and the US, a, a member of the Madrid Protocol, there's one application that you can file, which essentially just shoots out to both countries and gives you a registration that way. And is that quite uh, an onerous process, a lengthy process? It's no, not any much longer than doing it um, in, individually. And so I presume that um, if I wanted to, let's say, extend that protection or register a trademark in other jurisdictions, such as South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, each of those would attract a cost, a fee, and there would be a separate process for each. Exactly, yes. Okay, so all of this can really add up. All of this can really add up, that's right. Yeah. So a training business owner needs to be really clear about the kinds of um, jurisdictions in which she or he wants to protect her or his intellectual property. That's right. And it's not necessarily important to protect in every jurisdiction. Right. But you might want to consider the jurisdictions that you target or that you have the, the largest viewership. Okay. So moving on to step four now, or rather tip four, um, what is your fourth tip then for our listeners? Sure. So 
include rights notices on content which you're disseminating. So for example, um, you might might have seen copyright notices on the bottom of websites. So it's a notice that says copyright all rights reserves, the name of the company and the year of publication. So that's important. So if you have any written content or written materials that you're handing out to your um, participants, you should have the copyright notice on it as well. Um, there's actually damages in the U.S. for removal of a copyright notice. If, oh. if someone takes the content and removes a copyright notice and then disseminates it, that can gives you potentially more damages than just disseminating alone. Um, so I would suggest always including the copyright notice on on creative content. So that's that's basically willful, whereas the the former is accidental. Someone could actually accidentally remove, or rather, accidentally copy content and use it. But but the the act of removing a trademark or anything laying claim to IP that's intentional. That's not accidental. Well, there will be attorneys who would argue that it's. <laughs> that it's <laughs> <laughs> that it's not intentional, but okay. that's a longer podcast. <laughs> okay, another episode. All right. Um, so moving on then to your, your fifth tip, uh, tip five, to help training business owners to protect their IP. What would that be? Sure. If you're unsure about whether something can be protected, you know, it, it's important just consult an, an attorney. Many attorneys offer free initial consultations. Um, they might be willing to just chat with you and give you an idea of what can be protected and what cannot. Um, so if you're unsure, just reach out to an attorney and have a chat. Um, I mean, you make it sound rather simple. How would someone go about, uh, you know, finding someone who, and this is based upon my um, recollection of previous engagement with, with legal services, how do you find out where someone is actually a specialist in that area? And the reason I ask is because I've come across attorneys who might be doing, you know, uh, something to do with uh, separation and divorce, and then they might be dabbling in the area of uh, commercial law and maybe dabbling in the area of, of some other kind of, of, of legal discipline. Is it really worth um, contacting a specialist? And, and if so, um, how does one go about finding a specialist? You know, because there are lots and lots of attorneys. How do you find someone who's a specialist? Um, and is the right person that, that reassures you, yes, you know what you're talking about and you can give me good advice specifically in the area of intellectual property? Yeah, sure. I think it's important to contact a specialist. Mm. Each area of law has so many crevices and corners and turn, twists and turns. It's, it's really difficult to know it all. Um, so if you're doing... If you're one attorney and you're doing several areas of law, I think it's very easy to miss things. I'm obviously not ragging on anyone's practice, but mm -hmm. I think it is very difficult to miss things just in intellectual property alone. There's so many issues just between trademark, copyright, and patent um, that I think you know it's important to, to, to work with someone who does this every day. So they see different things in this industry. Um, there are a lot of larger firms who have several attorneys so they can offer different practice areas. So they have specialists in specific practice areas, but they do more of a general practice overall. That's fine because obviously they have a specialist in that practice area. But if you're working with a smaller firm, I think it's important to ensure that the person is a specialist and, and not doing too many other things. In terms of how to find them, um, maybe ask friends and colleagues for recommendations. You could go online as well. Um, 
but if you're going online, I would say just be sure to read reviews um, and do the due diligence to make sure that the person is, you know, really knowledgeable in the industry. What kinds of questions could someone then ask when they're contacting a legal professional for the first time? Um, I know this is perhaps a tricky one to answer, but um, what kinds of questions would someone ask of you legitimately to to allay any concerns they have and to reassure them that they're talking to someone whose uh, expertise is is uh, firmly in the in the area of intellectual property and, and can help them? Yeah, sure. Um, typically, what I experience is uh, potential clients asking questions about their specific issue. And I'm happy to give some, um, you know, basic advice just to show them that I do have expertise in the area, although I, I wouldn't be able to give them the lay of the land just because they're not actually a client. Um, but basic general advice and potential tips I'd be able to give them. And, you know, I think they'd be able to understand that, you know, this is something that I do every day and I'm aware of the issues and would be able to help them. And does that extend uh, to areas outside of New York? Is it national or has your firm, Grant Attorneys at Law, PLLC, have you an expertise uh, outside the jurisdiction of the continental United States? Yeah, so we do international applications as well. So we're, we do what I, what I mentioned earlier, the magic protocol call applications, which allow us to file um, for trademark protection in different countries. However, what happens is if there's an issue with the application, um, in a specific country, for example, let's say the UK, we have relationships with firms there that then take over because um, the governments in those countries don't allow U.S. barred attorneys to obviously prosecute before them. So right. we have relationships with international firms. Okay, okay. Any other final thoughts um, that someone listening to this, you know, might take on board? Is there some something that uh, she or he could read? Are there resources online just to sort of get to grips uh, with the basics of intellectual property law? Yeah, I mean, if you're in the US, I would say go on the USPTO's website. Um, I'm sure the EU IPO website has a similar um, lay of the land. Um, I would say Googling any issue that, you, that you're facing would probably bring up several <laughs> Um, hits. Um, so just kind of read around, see what you can find. Um, but intellectual property is, is a very important aspect of every business, it's especially training businesses where a lot of content is created. So I think failing to protect it can leave you very vulnerable as a training business. So on that note, Kristen, how can listeners contact you and, and where will they find you online? I can be contacted by email. My email address is kgrant at grant.legal and there's no .com at the end. Or you can call the office. Our number is 212-520-7881. So 212 is a New York area code. That's right. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. Look, um, on that note, thank you so much for coming on the program, Kristen. I really appreciate your time today. Um, I'm sure you have lots on right now. Um, I am informing myself increasingly about intellectual property for a, for a variety of reasons, but I think it's something that listeners, uh, 
you know, you as training business owners need to really take seriously, either whether it comes to protecting your own content um, by misuse uh, of by other people, or whether it comes to protecting yourself from misuse, unintentional or not, um, of content owned by other people. So both of these, I think, um, are really two good reasons that we as training business owners need to be very careful about the kinds of content that we produce, whether it's produced by us and used by others, or whether it's created by others and used by us. So Kristen, thank you so much again for your time today. And I look forward to speaking to you at some point in the future. Great. Thanks for having me, Mark. I hope you enjoy that. Thanks for listening today. And thanks for inviting me into your car journey, your commute, or even your coffee break. Do reach out on email to markghays at gmail.com. I respond personally. I'm always thinking about how I can uh, help you or how my guests can help you. So please contact me. My goal is to make this show and every episode relevant and helpful to your training business. So stop by again next Thursday and have a wonderful training business week. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.